I'm pumped for this morning. I hope you are. Why don't you just turn to the person next to you right now and say, this is going to be good. Come on, let's just set that expectation right now. It's going to be good. Better be good. You can turn to the person on the other side and say, it better be good. Better be. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn with me to Mark chapter number 10 and verse 17. Mark chapter number 10 and verse 17. A passage of scripture that you might be familiar with, Jesus is uh, on a journey, he's on the road, and uh, as he's setting out on this journey, uh, a man runs up to him and, and, and asks him some questions, and I want to look a little bit at how Jesus responds today and, and how this is applicable to our lives. Uh, Mark chapter number 10 and verse 17, it says, it says, and as he was setting out on his journey, Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be right with God? What must I do to be made righteous? What must I do to be able to enter into heaven and into eternal life with God? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to them, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus said to him, Jesus, sorry, and Jesus looking at him, loved him. I love that. And Jesus looks at him and loves him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, saddened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and then come and follow me. And he went away saddened because he had a great many possessions. I want to share a message with you this morning entitled, All I Have is Yours. All I have is yours. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to look at this scripture, and then I'm going to look at two other encounters with Jesus and what it is that God wants to do in our hearts. So let's go ahead and, and pray together this morning. Father, we thank you so much right now that we can just submit ourselves to you, to your spirit, to your presence, to your voice, Lord. We didn't come here to hear the voice of a, of a man, to hear uh, philosophical ramblings, Father. We came here to connect with your spirit and your word, and we thank you that your word endures forever. Today, Lord Jesus, we, we, we open our hearts and minds and we thank you that you are speaking clearly, that you're changing us, that you're delivering us, that you're setting us free from things that would hold us back from serving you fully. We thank you for the miracle of what you're doing right now in our presence, in Jesus' name, amen. One of the biggest goals that uh, we have as a church one of the things that we set out to do when we sat down, we said, what are the values? What is church about? It was really to help people grow in their walk with God. It's really to help people go on a journey, no matter where you're at in your journey. You might be arriving here today and go, well, I've just started in this journey. I know nothing about the Bible. You know, I've run the opposite direction that God had called me in. Uh, I've run the opposite direction for years and years and years, and I'm right at the beginning of this journey right now. And that might be you. You might be halfway along. You might be, uh, have been on the road for a long time. But wherever you're at, we know that the Bible says that God is constantly taking us from glory to glory until we, we are find ourselves in the image of his son, that God is causing us to become more like Jesus. 
to embody the, the faithfulness and the truthfulness of Jesus in our lives. That's, that's the journey that God has for us. And so we said, everybody is welcome here at Anchor. We wanna go on a journey together where there's wrestling room. We can, we can doubt and we can, we can debate and we can think about things and we can grow forward. And, and this is the point is that we all come as we are to Jesus, but Jesus never leaves us as we are. That's, that's the thing about God. If you come to Jesus, you can come to him just as you are. You don't need to dress up. You don't need to fix things. You don't need to, to change your life. You just come to Jesus the way that you are, and then you trust him. And what he does is he does the miracle of changing you because of his love. He does it from the inside out, not from the outside in. It's the devil that works from the outside in, tempting you with things outside to change your thinking and change your perceptions and to, and to essentially deceive. God works from the inside out. He works from your heart. He, does, he first speaks something to your heart. I, I mentioned this last year in one of our series, but if, Jesus, if your life was a party and Jesus arrived at the party, he is pushing past all of the guests. He doesn't want to speak to, to anything else in your life. He wants to get right to the heart. That's the only guest Jesus wants to speak to. Jesus wants to speak to your heart. And he starts there. He convinces you of his love and his reality and his presence. And from there, everything begins to change naturally. It's like dropping a pebble into a pond, into the center of a pond. And there's, there's a splash in the middle. And then there's a ripple that goes out throughout your life. That's what God's presence and touch in your life is like. Like a pebble that eventually affects everything. That's why Charles Spurgeon said, right believing leads to right living. You've got to believe right before you can live right. Your right living is not going to change your believing. We all have a base level theology and philosophy that we live our lives according to. Sometimes we're not even aware of what the aspects of those philosophies are. But when the word, when the truth hits your heart, when the presence of Jesus comes into your life, Boom, something drops and, and things just begin to change. It's like a wave of change that washes over you. And that's the process that God has us in. And so one of our biggest goals as a church is to help you mature in your faith. We're not just here to get bums in seats, right? We're not just here to have people show up on a Sunday so that we can high five each other afterwards and say that was awesome, a lot of people came through. We actually want to see people change. We wanna see hearts change. We wanna see lives change, circumstances turned around. We want to see people mature in their faith. That's the reason why we preach. It's the reason why we bring the word so that you can grow and mature in your understanding of Jesus. Paul said in Colossians 1 verse 28, he said this is the reason why he preaches. You ask Paul, Paul, why do you preach the gospel? Why do you go to all the churches? Why do you move around and, and preach the gospel? And he says this in Colossians 1.28, he says, him we proclaim. We preach Jesus. One translation says this, we preach Jesus, no more, no less. We preach Jesus, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. That's why we preach, that's why we warn, that's why we, 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 we uh, share on a Sunday morning with all wisdom, the word, helping the word come alive in your life. And what I'm really hoping is that when we preach a message and you hear a story in the Bible that you won't just go, okay, that's great, uh, the pastor did the Bible reading for me this week, but that you would go home and pick up your Bible, dust it off, open it up and go, man, I wanna go back to that verse, I wanna read it again. I want it to speak to me the way that it did on that Sunday morning. We wanna see people grow and develop and become mature in their faith. That's our goal. That's our commitment to you. 
in any way we can, whether it's running a course, whether it's preaching on Sundays, whether it's connect groups, whatever we can do to help you become mature in your faith, that's what we want to do. Help you come to maturity. Maturity is an interesting concept. Uh, being an adult is an interesting concept sometimes in life because I have met people that are so mature in some areas, but then in other areas are just so immature. Do you know some people like that? Come on, let's be honest. We are people like that, okay? We're all people like that. We're mature. We're great in some areas. Man, we, we, you know, we just, we're just so wise and, and even killed and even tempered. And we're like, I can do this. And you take it in your stride. And then there's something else. Like somebody could just say something to you and it's like a trigger and you just lose it. And you just act like a, like a, like a four-year-old child. We're like that. So sometimes in maturity, our maturity isn't like one big wave, but it's like we mature in this area, and this area we need a little bit of growth, and then that area need a little bit of growth. And I'll put up my hand first. I'm like that. I need growth in certain areas, and, uh, and, and oftentimes we have uh, these, these areas where we're actually still quite childish or immature. You see this a lot when you're running teams. I've been running teams in church for many, many years, and uh, especially when it comes to how people deal with certain types of pressure, you actually begin to recognize uh, immaturity. And I remember once years ago leading a team and, and I had a guy who was a, just so wise, just so committed, just so motivated. He was leading teams. He was doing stuff in church. It was just, just incredible. And there came one situation where, and it wasn't even a big situation, just one thing that came up there was a little bit of an issue, and as the leader of the team, I had to sit down because it affected some of the other guys in the team and just have a chat with him about, about how it made the other guys in the team feel and how we can fix it and work together better, right, which is always a challenge in any team dynamic. And so I remember sitting down with him and, and uh, in a very loving way trying to just bring across how the people felt and what I would expect from him as a leader and who I believe him to be. And I remember his response. He basically stood up and he said, fine, if that's how you feel, I'm leaving. And he left and he never ever came back. One conversation, this guy had been serving with us for months, one conversation, and he was just like, fine, if, if, you're, gonna, if you're gonna correct me on stuff, I'm out, I'm gone. And that's, that's immaturity, right? Even though he was uh, so good in so many other areas, sometimes we have these sensitivities. We build up a sensitivity to something and it, as a church community, and maybe even as a society, we've become like this. We're very mature in some areas, but in other areas, whenever somebody brings it up, we're like, what, what is going on now? I, I, I don't wanna come back to this church. I don't wanna hear them talk about that stuff. I don't wanna deal with these issues. And the sensitivity that I'm mentioning specifically today is when money gets brought up in church. It's like, we can keep ourselves from becoming mature in an area because we're overly sensitive to money. And why are we overly sensitive in the church or in society towards the, the talking about money? Why? Because we've had a bad experience. Normally when people are sensitive to something in their lives, it's because of an experience that they've had that's actually kept them back from reaching a full understanding of that area in their lives and, and growing and being mature. Does it make sense this morning? We've had a bad experience. So let me put it out there. I know because I've been a part of those experiences. I've, I've, I've felt it the same way that you have felt it. I know that there has been abuse in the church in regards to finances, in regards to money, and it prevents us from growing in full maturity. Now, I don't want that for us as a church. I want us to have a mature view of finances and of money in your life and in ours. Why? Because money is a massive part of our lives. 
let's be honest, we think about it every single day. We're thinking about our money, our finances, and it represents so much more than just the currency that you use to buy things with. It represents your life. It represents your life because you work for that money. You wake up early in the morning and you get in a car and you put up with a boss so that you can get paid that salary. And so when you come home, you have your money, you're like, I earned this, I worked for this. And, uh, and, and, and so it feels like it, it's actually very close to our hearts. It's very close to our hearts. And so the truth is, is that wherever God has an incredibly powerful truth, the devil will always bring an abuse. It's almost like a pendulum. The, 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 mo the more powerful something is, the greater the, the abuse is. The more ability it has to do good, the greater the devil will try and swing it the other way and use it for evil and discredit. And this is where many pastors and churches have fallen into the trap of falling in love with money. And Paul writes to the, in Acts, we covered this, Paul writes to the elders in Ephesus and he goes, do not love money. But learn what Jesus said. Learn how true it is that it is better to give than to receive. In fact, that was Paul's last meeting with the elders of Ephesus. After that, they, they all got down on their knees, prayed and cried together and said goodbye to Paul. That's the last thing he says. Hey guys, I'm a, I'll never see you again. So I just want to tell you real quick, don't love money. Just, just, just prove what Jesus said is true, that it's truly better to give than to receive. We want to be mature in this area and know how God uh, calls us to use the resources that he has put us in, in, in our hands. God wants us to walk in his best for our lives in every area, including our finances. And, and this is why Jesus actually spoke about money all of the time. This is why as much as I'd like to avoid the subject because of the sensitivities, I can't because it's something Jesus spoke about often. In fact, he spoke more about money than almost any other subject. He spoke more about money than heaven and hell put together. He was always mentioning it because he knew the power of it. So he said stuff like this in Matthew 6, 24. If you have your Bibles, you can turn Matthew 6, 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see what Jesus, Jesus takes money to a whole new level here. You see that? He's not just like, hey, make sure you use your money well and make sure you don't kind of blow it all in one, at one time. Make sure you don't make any bad investments. Jesus is not kind of just uh, giving you a little bit of good, a couple of financial tips or good advice. He's actually saying, hey, money could become your God. That's the real danger here. You can't worship God and serve God and at the same time worship and serve money. He actually is saying that our money, our finances could rival the position of God in our lives. Where we begin to look at it as our, uh, your salary can become your savior. You can begin to look at, at, your, at the, your ability to provide as your, your means of life. And in that, we begin to see our work and our job and ultimately ourselves as our saviors other than trusting in the provision of God. It takes your heart away from trusting in God. And right now, if your bank accounts are like fairly okay, you're like, yeah, I don't trust in money. Wait until there's no money. Then we'll see where your trust really is. Because it's difficult when you've got no money to go, God, okay, 
I trust you. There's nothing I can do now. I can just trust you. And it's amazing how you could even walk into church on a Sunday morning and if you know that your finances are okay and you, maybe you just got a promotion, you just got an extra bonus and your, you know, your, your, health, your, your bank account is looking really healthy, you, you can stand and you just worship. You're like, Jesus, Jesus. It's so good, so good, Jesus. But you walk in and, and, and you're in a financial crisis or you've just gone through a great loss or a vet, an investment has just fallen through or a deal has just gone south or you've just lost, lost your job and you're like, where are you, Jesus? I mean, it just changes everything about how we worship God because we find a lot of our security and identity in it. That's why Jesus spoke about it so much because he knew that it had the ability to capture our hearts, to hold our hearts. He says in Luke 12, 15, he says, and he said to them, take care, watch out, and be on your guard against all covetousness, the greed that we have and the desire to, to have all the things that this world shows us, this covetousness. For one's life, Jesus says, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your life doesn't consist out of how much you can own. That's not what life is about. Ask the guys who own everything. They'll tell you. They'll tell you. We've got all the money in the world. We've got a, a yacht in Monaco. We've got all these cars in the garage, 17 different luxury cars. We've got this and that and all these things, and we are still desperately unhappy seeking life. So Jesus says, be careful that you don't begin to look at money to money as the thing that's going to help you live the abundant life because life doesn't consist in possessions, of possessions. Jesus knew that money had this ability to own us, this ab ability to grip our hearts, gripped by greed. And it's a very difficult thing to break free from. That's where we need the grace of God. I remember one of my, my first recollections of experiencing the turmoil around money was when I was maybe seven or eight years old. And if you have been a Christian for a very, very long time, you'll know that there was an artist called Carmen. Anybody know Carmen? All right. The pastor's kids, they all know. Carmen, right? So Carmen, just go look it up, all right? Go YouTube Carmen when you get home today. But Carmen was this amazing Christian artist. Uh, he did these kinds of things where he would do songs, but he would do storytelling in his songs. Um, and so as growing up in church, my grandfather was a pastor, my cousins and I, we would work out our own dancers to Carmen songs. It was pretty amazing. Um, and, uh, and so at one point, Carmen came to South Africa. He actually came to South Africa, filled out Wanderers Stadium. You haven't even heard of him, but he filled out the whole of Wanderers Stadium. And uh, obviously we were there. We were there, and I remember crawling through the people, getting right to the front row, sitting down where the, where the rope was, and, and watching Carmen the whole day there in the sun at Wanderers. It was an amazing Sunday. And we leave after the concert. I walk out, and there's a table, and they're selling cassettes because CDs hadn't been invented yet, right, back then. So that no CDs, but they're selling cassettes. And they had this one cassette, uh, which was like a kid's version. Carmen did this thing called Yo Kids. I was still a kid, obviously, so it appealed to me. Um, and he, it was Carmen with this big, like, cat on the front. And so, um, and so I was like, I, I want to have this. I really, I just, I enjoyed the concert. I want to have this tape. And I remember picking it up and turning it over. And I think it was 30 Rand, if I remember correctly. And uh, that was a big chunk of my pocket money. It might have been all of my pocket money. I can't remember exactly. But I pick it up and I look at this Carmen tape and I'm like, 30 bucks. I'm like, whoa. 
Sheesh, okay, I like Carmen, but do I like him that much, right? I don't know if I'm willing to, to let go of this amount of money. And so I put it down again. And, and if you know me today, you'll, you can ask my wife. I'm still like this, actually, when I go to shops. Like, I'll pick something up. I go, no, no, no. Then I walk away, look at every other shop. I'll come back. I'll be like, nah. And, and it's just because I'm a little bit OCD with stuff sometimes. But, but I, I pick this table. I'm like, 30 rand, no, I'll leave it. And then I'll like walk to here. And I was like, but I really want it. And I come back. And I'm like eight years old, going through this intense battle over 30 rand. And I remember my parents are standing there watching this, like waiting for me because we've got to go to the car. And I'm like, okay, okay. And then eventually my mom walks up to me and she says this. She says, Adrian, you own your money. Your money does not own you. If you want the tape, just buy it. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll take it. And I actually really enjoyed it. So I was glad I made that decision. But the point is, is that we can have this thing where we think we own our money, but actually our money owns us. We think that we uh, get that salary, but that salary owns us. It drives us. It, it, it changes the way we feel about life. It changes the way we, we, we the, 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 the positivity or the hope or the, the, when you wake up in the morning, how you feel. It changes that according to your money, the status of your bank account. C.S. Lewis wrote this in the Screw Tape Letters. He said, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it while really it is finding its place in him. It knits you to the world. It's taking up space in your heart. It's capturing aspects of your heart. And Jesus knows this. He knows this and his heart is for us to be free. Free from the grip of greed. Free from our self-serving desires. Free from the love of money. Jesus doesn't want us to be held back by our financial situation. Jesus doesn't want us to, to worship money as our God to substitute his power for what we can buy with our South African rand, which is becoming less and less. And so he wants us to be free, mature. He wants us to be blessed. He wants us to be able to provide for our families. I love what David writes. He goes, I have, I've been young and now I'm old, but there's two things I've never seen, the righteous forsaken nor their children begging for bread. God just provides. So there's, there's nothing wrong with being blessed and, and, and being wealthy. If God uh, empowers you in your business, we, we celebrate that. We thank God for that. As long as money doesn't hold your heart. As long as it doesn't win over your soul and become your God. So this young man that comes to Jesus in this passage of Scripture, he's incredibly wealthy. And he asked Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be right with God? And Jesus looks at this young man and a few things, he says a few things. And I wanna just look at these things real quick. The first thing Jesus says is this, why do you call me good? Because he says, good teacher, what must I do? He goes, why do you call me good? Surely only God is good. Ultimately what Jesus is asking him is, do you recognize who I am? You're asking about eternal life, but do you recognize who I am? This would kind of be like walking up to a policeman and saying to him, do you know where I can find a policeman? He's gonna go, can you see that I am one? <laughs> this is the, what a policeman would probably say to you. So he goes up, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus is essentially saying, don't you understand that only God is good? You call me good, but do you recognize that I am God, that I am eternal life? that I am the only one who can give you etern eternal life? Do you genuinely have a revelation of who I am when you ask me this question? 
It's the same statement that Jesus made to the woman at the well that we looked at uh, about three weeks ago, where Jesus said to her, uh, uh, give me a drink. He asked for a drink. And she said, well, you know, how can you as a Jewish person speak to me as a Samaritan woman? And Jesus says this. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks of you, you would, ask, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water and you would never have thirst ag- again. He asks her the question, do you, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it is that's sitting in front of you, you would believe that Jesus is not just a teacher, but the Savior. Do you recognize Jesus? That he's not just one who has come to give us rules to live by, not just some good financial advice, not some some good, he has five steps to get into heaven. For a lot of people, that's how they view Christianity. Five steps to get into heaven. Let me tell you, there are no steps to get into heaven. There's only a person called Jesus Christ. It's not a system that we work, it's a faith that we have in a person called Jesus. So good teacher, he goes, hang on, you've missed it here. It's about recognizing me, faith in me. So then he says this, Jesus throws this out there. He says, you know the commandments. You know the commandments. Jesus points this young man to the law. You know the laws. And as I mentioned before, he goes, "Uh, which ones? Which ones do I need to follow to get the bare minimum to get into heaven? And Jesus just mentioned six out of the 10. And this guy proudly proclaims, well, all these I have done. And it says Jesus looked at him and loved him because he sees something in this young man. What he recognizes in this young man is that something else holds his heart. You see, that's the thing. You can fulfill the law. You can be a good Christian and still live in a position where your heart belongs to something else other than God, is trusting in something else. So he says, one thing you still lack, sell all you have and give it away and then come and follow me. And this is what Jesus is saying. You've been following the law. You've been following the rules of Christianity or the rules of Judaism, but you still haven't recognized me as your savior. You still haven't recognized God as your source. You don't have a revelation of the Father as your provider. So the thing that you lack, the thing that keeps you back from serving God is the money that holds your heart. And Jesus says this to him because he loves him. He wants him to be free. This is one encounter where a young man comes up to Jesus, wants eternal life. Jesus says, you need to give your heart to me. You need to trust me. He goes away sad. But there are two other encounters with Jesus that I want to look at this morning and how different they are. The first encounter with Jesus that I want to look at is in Genesis chapter number 14. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 14. And if you know your Bible, you're probably thinking, how could somebody have an encounter with Jesus in Genesis chapter number 14? It's in the Old Testament and Jesus hadn't been physically born yet. But this is another Christophany. We mentioned this a few weeks back. A Christophany is a place in Scripture where Jesus appears uh, and uh, either they call him the angel of the Lord or in this case, Melchizedek. But I'll show you now how Melchizedek is Jesus. It's a type of Christ. And so Abraham uh, meets up with with Melchizedek here in Genesis uh, Genesis 14. And I'm going to read from verse 16. It says, Then he brought back all the possessions. He went into battle. Uh, They had taken Lot and his kinsmen, 
captive and, and Abraham pursues them, goes into battle, wins the battle. And then in verse 16, it says, then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the woman and the people. And after his return from the defeat of that word and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, Melchizedek, which is Jesus, king of Salem, Salem means peace. So the king of peace, Jerusalem is the city of peace. The king of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him, or Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. All the spoils of war, Abraham gives him a tenth of every, everything. So Abraham is met by this guy, Melchizedek, And Melchizedek, as I said, is, is Jesus. I just want to show you this in scripture, Hebrews 7 verse, verse 1. Hebrews 7 verse 1, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither a beginning of days nor an end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So, Melchizedek is a type of Jesus. And what he does is, he comes out to Abraham, meets him. So here, like the rich young man who had all this wealth and meets Jesus on the road, Abraham meets Jesus on the road. And what does Jesus, what does Melchizedek do with Abraham? The first thing he does is he takes bread and wine and he shares it with him. That's communion. That bread represents the body of Jesus that was, you know, to make bread, you've got to knead it and you've got to, you've got to stretch it and you've got to, you've got to punch it and, and, and roll it and, and, and crush it. And that is what happened to Jesus on the cross. That's why he stood up on the night that he was betrayed and he took the bread and he said, this is my body that was broken for you. And then he takes the, the, the wine and he has wine with Abraham and the wine Jesus took as well on that night to make wine. You've got to literally crush grapes in order to get the wine. That's how they made wine in the old days. And Jesus was crushed for our sins. And so Jesus says, this is my blood that is poured out for you. And it symbolizes a covenant that we have with God. And so the first thing that, that Melchizedek comes is he comes to Abraham and he breaks bread. And this is what I'm trying to say, that Abraham recognizes that this is God. He, it's about having a revelation of who you're meeting with. And so he stands in front of Melchizedek. He, he breaks the bread with him. And Melchizedek says this. He says, blessed be the God who has delivered your enemies into your hands. In other words, God is the one who gave you the victory. God is the one who caused you to have the ability to be made rich. The Bible says in Corinthians, we'll be made rich in every way so that we can be made generous, so that we can be generous on every occasion. So he recognizes his source. He recognizes the king of Salem. And without there being a law or something to force him or something that tells him you have to do this or a pastor shouting at him, 
he gives one-tenth of what he has away. He gives it to Melchizedek freely. Freely. Here it is. The question that I had always was, why 10%? Like, why did Abraham go with the 10% thing? Where did that even come from? What does that represent? In Scripture, 10% actually represents completeness or wholeness. And you're welcome to go and look this up. Don't take my word for it. But it represents the fullness or the completeness. We actually find many times in Scripture where the 10 represents all. So when you have, for example, Moses gets 613 laws uh, that God gives him for the people of Israel in Exodus 20, but God summarizes it in 10 laws because the 10 laws represent all of the law. When Abraham sends his servant, the unnamed servant, to go and find a son for his uh, a wife for his son Isaac in Genesis 14, he says, I want you to go find Isaac a wife and I want her to, to see the wealth that I have and so he tells this unnamed servant to take 10 camels. He takes 10 camels representing all of the wealth of Abraham. We see it with Joseph. Joseph is in Egypt. We, look at that, we looked at that story two weeks ago. Joseph is in Egypt. His brothers come and Pharaoh says to Joseph, I want you to send your brothers back to Egypt to go and fetch your dad. And I want, you, I want, you, I want your brothers to tell your dad that he is welcome to come down to Egypt and to enjoy the blessings of Egypt and to eat of the fat of the lamb, the blessings and the fat of the lamb. So look at what Joseph tells his brothers to do in, in Genesis 45, verse 24. It says, to his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. I want him to enjoy the good things of Egypt and the fat of the lamb. So he sends 10 donkeys filled with these treasures and 10 donkeys with grain and wheat representing the provision of Egypt. And there are many other cases like this in scripture, but for the sake of time, here's the point. For Abraham, when he gave that 10, it wasn't about a law. It wasn't about a percentage. It wasn't about something forced. He was ultimately saying to God, everything that I have, is yours. All that I have is yours. And why? Because he recognized that if it wasn't for God's provision, he wouldn't even have it. So he recognized that actually, if you look at the story of the prodigal son, the, son turns, the, the father turns to the older brother and he says, son, all that I have is yours. So everything that is God's is ours. It's ours in Jesus Christ. And, and when we give it back, we're saying yes, and everything that we have is truly yours. It's a recognition. It's a revelation of Jesus. He gives the 10%. And this was before the law was given. There was no rule, no compulsion, no manipulation. This is just recognition and gratitude for what God is doing and how he's provided for you in your life. And so that is why our giving, when we give, we worship God. When we give, when we're generous, we worship God. Because we're saying, God, I trust you. I recognize you as my source and I trust you as my provider and my father. That is worship. There's no greater way to honor God than to trust him. Saying, because what you're saying is, Father, you're trustworthy. And ultimately, it's laying down the one thing that can keep us from serving God freely. There's one more uh, encounter that I want to mention this morning. 
And in fact, when you read the story in Luke, it's in Luke chapter number 18, where the rich young man arrives uh, before Jesus. And in the very next chapter, you find almost the opposite happening in the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter number 19. So in the, the story of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus is this guy who lives in a town and Jesus comes through this town. But here's the thing that people don't often know. We know that Zacchaeus was short and he climbed up into a tree to see Jesus coming through the crowd. So he kind of had an idea of who Jesus was. But what you don't know about Jesus, is, I mean about Zacchaeus, is that he was a full-on gangster. He's not the kind of guy that religious people hang out with at all. The Bible says that he was the chief tax collector. Now how the tax collectors worked is that they were uh, Hebrew guys, Jewish guys of Israel that the Roman government, the Roman empire employed to collect the taxes from their own people and harsh taxes. And the arrangement between the tax collectors and Rome was that they can charge the people whatever they want. How, however much money you can get out of the people, we just want our cut and you can keep the rest. And so he would actually extort money from people. And so Jesus walks up to him, stops and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm gonna come eat at your house. And so Zacchaeus takes Jesus into his house and a meal in those days wasn't like, let's grab a quick bite, have a coffee and then go home. A meal in those days was literally, let's spend the afternoon. Let's hang out. Let's, let's really share. Let's, it, it was like accepting someone. And so this is why it was such a problem for the religious people. In this very instance, the religious people are like, how can Jesus be hanging out at the house of Zacchaeus, this mobster, this gangster? But it's just his presence. Something happens in your life, no matter how big a rebel you are, no matter how selfish you are, no matter how sinful you are, when you just allow Jesus the time to reveal himself to you. Something happens. And it happens in the life of Zacchaeus. It says this, in Luke 19 verse eight, it says, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, just stop there. He recognizes him as Lord. Zacchaeus sees this is God. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to, to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, which he knows is a lot of people, I restore it fourfold. First of all, half of what I have, give it away. The rest, fourfold to anybody I've ever defrauded. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of who? Abraham. Faith, the one who met Melchizedek on the road. Is a recognition of Jesus. That's what faith is. It's a recognition and a response to, the, to who Jesus is as the son of God, as uh, the creator of heaven and earth, as the father, as the provider. A recognition of who God is. So Jesus says, you, this is salvation. Today, salvation is in your home because he recognized who Jesus was. See the big difference between the rich young man who wanted to live according to the law. How much should I give Jesus? 10%, 20%, 30%? Give me a number, I'll fulfill the law, then, I'm, then we're good here. No, it's not what Jesus wants. He wants you to recognize who he is, a revelation of his love. I'm almost done this morning. Hebrews 7 verse four 
sums all of this up. It's my last scripture that I want to share with you. Hebrews 7 verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, talking about Melchizedek, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive the tithes. The normal priests in Israel had to receive the tithes from the people according to the law, that is from their brethren, though they had come from the loins of Abraham. Verse six, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had promises. What the scripture is saying is Abraham meets Melchizedek and the priests, have never, they don't even exist yet. The law hasn't even come about yet. But there's such a recognition of how great this man is that Abraham gives him a tenth without it being a law or being a commandment. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Because Melchizedek blesses Abraham, so he goes, Jesus is greater than Abraham. Verse 8, and this is important. Here on earth, mortal men receive tithes, but there he, Melchizedek, receives them, of whom it is testified that he lives. He receives them. The communion that we take ultimately is a revelation of the fact that Jesus died. But when we worship, and when we give, we're declaring that we have a revelation that he lives. When we give, we testify that Jesus is the one who receives our offerings because he's alive. Here, mortal men receive the tithes, but there he receives them, of whom is testified that he lives. This is what giving looks like under grace. The Bible says nobody should give under compulsion but each one as he has decided in his heart. See, it's a heart issue. And that's where Jesus wants us to be mature. Not held back because we're worried about some of the abuse that's happened in the past, but to say, Jesus, I believe that you live. I recognize that you are alive and therefore I give. And if you give 10%, what you're saying is, I am giving all that I have. It's all yours. That's what it represents. We're set free to worship Jesus. It's a response to revelation. And it's a declaration of our trust. You see, you trust God and God just comes through. Right at the end of the story, Melchizedek says, blessed be Abraham by God most high. I'm telling you now that there is nothing that you could ever put in God's hands that would be lost. You never lose what you give away, you only gain. And God is faithful. Question is this morning, do we believe it? Do we recognize Jesus in this area of our finances?